It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Part of the reason that teachers struggle is because we learn more and they're expected to advance in the face of all this increased knowledge, but not giving the appropriate amount of resources, just like this legislation itself, to live up to those expectations. This is Sarah. This is Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Pantsuit Politics. Before we discuss the news, discuss IDEA funding. We're really excited about this topic. And what's on our mind outside politics. We wanted to check in on the Nuance Nation and who will be joining us live. We're hitting the road again. We'll be in Michigan this Saturday at the Troy Community Center. And we're going to be joined by Representative Haley Stevens, a friend of mine and an amazing member of the current freshman class. Then a few weeks after that, we'll be in Louisville on September 28th at the Kentucky Center with Amy McGrath. We've still got tickets for our show in Washington, D.C. with Susan Page and in Dallas with MJ Hager. So follow the link in the show notes and come see what we do live and in person. Let's start with Afghanistan today. Everyone knows the president did some tweeting over the weekend, and it Mm -hmm. helped me to take a few steps back from the tweets, which do elevate my blood pressure, to think about where we are overall. You can hear 
so much more detail about all of this in this series that we produced last year commemorating September 11th. And we'll put a link to that in our show notes just to kind of level set, especially if you weren't with us for that series after the September 11th attacks. We got a joint resolution signed into law by President Bush authorizing force against those responsible for the attacks. So that was signed on September 18th of 2001, and that is the basis for our invasion of Afghanistan, among lots of other things. And we are still there today because of that authorization from 18 years ago. After that authorization, the United States commenced airstrikes on al-Qaeda and the Taliban. So let's talk about who those people are, just to remember. The Taliban is a Sunni Islamic fundamentalist political movement in Afghanistan. The Taliban refers to itself as the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. And in 2001, when we got that authorization for use of force, the Taliban was basically running Afghanistan. They held power over 75% of the country. And President Bush blamed them for giving safe haven to al-Qaeda. He believed that al-Qaeda could not have carried out the attack on the United States without the Taliban's support. So we've been at war in Afghanistan ever since, and it has had lots of ebbs and flows. In 2004, things were looking pretty good. Afghanistan created a constitution. We said that was a positive step toward democracy. There were elections, and President Karzai was elected with 55% of the vote. Then things got really weird on both sides. And particularly in America, we started processing what had happened on September 11th. We started thinking about the evasion of Iraq in connection with that. We got totally disillusioned and war fatigued. And that is a very short summary of what occurred. President Obama gets elected. He vows to withdraw from Afghanistan. But then in 2009, there was escalating violence there, and he recommitted and increased our troops. He tried to narrow the extremely broad and almost unknowable mission in Afghanistan to defeating al-Qaeda and preventing its return. Then in 2011, President Obama says, we're making progress here. We're going to draw down the troops, and we're going to start holding peace talks with the Taliban's leadership. In 2012, the Taliban suspended those talks and accused America of reneging on promises to work toward a prisoner swap. Then in 2014, President Obama says, we're going to withdraw most of our forces from Afghanistan. Here's a timetable for that. And the administration worked to broker an agreement around new elections in Afghanistan. So we have this, this ebb and flow, ebb and flow. Well, 2017 comes along and President Trump has been saying he's going to get us out of Afghanistan. But then ISIS starts to take hold in Afghanistan, and President Trump decides that we're going to drop our most powerful non-nuclear bomb on militants in the country. And we do that. But we start peace talks again. And for about a year, we've been in discussions with the Taliban, not, interestingly, the government in Afghanistan. So Afghanistan's president has not been part of these conversations. It has been our special envoy and a top Taliban official discussing withdrawing U.S. troops in exchange for a pledge by the Taliban to block international terrorist groups from operating in Afghanistan. We don't want another 9-11 to originate in Afghanistan. We also want to get our troops out, and we're trying to figure out how to make both of those things happen at one time. 
So the Trump administration has been conflicted about what to do here. You have basically Mike Pompeo and John Bolton at odds. Mike Pompeo is making the case that the Taliban's commitment to whatever we do in Afghanistan is really important. And John Bolton says, and this is a quote from the New York Times, that we should draw down troops without getting in bed with killers swathed in American blood. Okay. So... This conflict is brewing in the administration. Everyone's brainstorming and talking about what to do. And our TV president loves the idea of finalizing these talks in the United States. And at first they're talking about Washington, but then he says, no, Camp David. And let's bring the Afghan government to the table, too, and do an even bigger deal. And so Trump says... What you've negotiated sounds like a good starting place, but I don't want to wrap it up in advance. I want everybody to come to Camp David and I want to have talks with the government and talks with the Taliban and do this thing and have a big splashy deal result from it. Okay, small problem. The Taliban does not recognize the Afghan government as legitimate. And they are not willing to roll into Camp David and let Donald Trump fix that historic conflict, which is far more complicated than just withdrawing U.S. troops. And just withdrawing U.S. troops is really, really complicated. The Afghan government and President Ghani don't really want to do this Camp David thing either, but they don't have much of a choice because elections are supposed to happen in Afghanistan at the end of this month. And the United States has been kind of saying, I need you to hold off on those elections until we do this deal with the Taliban. And so the political uncertainty surrounding the president of Afghanistan has kind of compelled him to come to the table. But the Taliban says, we aren't coming to Camp David until we have a final deal. We'll come to celebrate that deal, but we will not come to finish it. And we will not come to the table with Afghanistan's government. So the Taliban, as it does, sends messages through violence. And the violence starts ramping up, including a car bomb that killed 12 people, one of whom was an American soldier, Army Sergeant First Class Elis Angel Coretto Ortiz. And that's when, even though the Camp David summit was never really on for sure, it was decidedly off. And there was no reason for any of this to be public, but the president started tweeting about it. I love this sentence from the New York Times. It was highlighted in Axios' email this morning. It says, On display were all of the characteristic traits of the Trump presidency, the yearning ambition for the grand prize, the endless quest to achieve what no other president has achieved, the willingness to defy convention, the volatile mood swings, and the tribal infighting. I think that just about sums it up. And I think what's so unfortunate, disgusting, tragic is that He's a TV president, and we have all breathlessly debated the Camp David invitation, the peace negotiation, how realistic any of this was to begin with. But the reality is that the people of Afghanistan will suffer real violence because of this, have already suffered decades of violence because of U.S. policy in Afghanistan and because of the terrorism of al-Qaeda, because of the Taliban. And so to play this out for maximum impact, to tweet about it, to be ready and willing to shred these norms and to be so dismissive and flippant with these peace negotiations. It's just these are the people whose lives hang in the balance, not to mention our military members who are in Afghanistan and who are put at risk. And it's just 
It's so gross. It's like this is not a season finale. This is a real thing that has caused so much trauma in the lives of Americans, in the lives of Afghans, and there's no seeming recognition or acknowledgement that this is serious and that this is not a reality show and that real people will lose their lives because of your flippant tweeting. And I wanted to go back through that history because it is a reminder to me that this has been such a quagmire and all these talks are so fragile that we Mm -hmm. are reliving the situation where we were going to try to work with the Taliban under the Obama administration. And we lost that opportunity. And we were there again at that fragile moment. And you can debate all day the wisdom of trying to negotiate with a group like the Taliban. And I have no idea what the right answer is. I think pragmatically, if the United States is going to see an Afghanistan not controlled by the Taliban, we're probably going to be there forever. Right. There's just no withdrawal. And your history was good. But that history of that country and violence and conflict like this starts way before September 11th. That's the other thing. I mean, we're talking about centuries of conflict with major nations inside Afghanistan, Russia, England. Like this is not that we're not the first ones at this rodeo. And the poor people of this country continue to suffer in the meantime. And I think we're kind of shredding President Trump for the wrong thing here, because Mm -hmm. I do think working with the Taliban is just almost necessary if we are going to withdraw our troops. I I don't see another way. And it's a huge gamble. And I don't know if it'll work. And the precious, I mean, it just seemed like the most important media story was the preciousness of an invitation to Camp David. And I'm like, I don't think that's the takeaway here with love. Like, If we want to have a conversation as a country about Afghanistan, it's not because we need to treat Camp David invitations with such sacredness and preciousness. Like, that's not that's not the important part here. It just isn't. If if a conference at Camp David could get this done, if that were meaningful to the parties at the table, it might be Mm -hmm. worth thinking about. When you think about how many Americans have died in Afghanistan and how many civilians have died in Afghanistan. Yep. It might be worth doing that. But that's not why Camp David was under consideration. And that's not why the deal fell apart. The deal fell apart Mm -hmm. in my reading of the reporting because this president wanted to do the final deal himself without Mm -hmm. understanding all of the intricacies of it. And that is the prospective danger for the United States politically. And as you well said, The danger for our soldiers and for people in Afghanistan is exponential because of this and and because he decided to take it public when he didn't need to do that. You Mm -hmm. know, this I extended an invitation for the flash and razzle dazzle of it, and now I'm rescinding it for that same reason. This is a terrible way to conduct our foreign policy. So we are not the only people who think that foreign policy via tweet is a bad idea. We are not the only people who think that inside the Republican Party, because we have another Republican Party challenger. And here's a funny story. When we were in California, we were going to record a nightly nuance about Joe Walsh. And we started recording. And I was like, I mean, it's not like he's still running off to his girlfriend in South America. And Beth was like, hold up. That's Mark Sanford. And I'm like, it's not him. And then I thought it was the guy who yelled, you liar, at Obama. And it wasn't him either. And now to keep me doubly confused, 
Now Mark Sanford, the guy who ran off to South America, actually is running against Donald Trump in the primary. Yes, he is. And many of you reached out to us to say, what is with the canceled primary headlines? Mm. Because Mark Sanford is in, Joe Walsh is in, Bill Weld is in. Mm -hmm. But there are several states that have announced they will not hold primaries. So Friday, Kansas said no caucuses here in 2020 for the Republican Party. On Saturday, South Carolina and Nevada did the same thing. Arizona is expected to cancel as well. So I want to try to answer the questions y'all have asked us. Can they do this? Yes, they can. The parties set their own rules about the primaries in the Republican Party. The states decide what they want to do. They have till October 1st to decide that. The RNC doesn't have a role here. This is purely up to the state parties. Has this happened before? Yes, it has. In 2004, 10 states canceled primaries to support George W. Bush. In 1996, eight states canceled primaries on the Democratic side to support Bill Clinton. 2012, 10 state primaries were canceled to support President Obama. Parties save a lot of money by not having their contest when they have an incumbent in the White House. Nevada's GOP says they'll save $150,000 by not doing this. Kansas will save $250,000. The point is the parties would rather spend their money on the races that are competitive than have a primary when there is an incumbent. And this has been really strategic. The Trump campaign has worked hard to take over the state parties and install their people. Bill Weld told CBS News that he's not talking to the state parties because they're all run by Trump people. And so Mm. this isn't unprecedented. What I think is abnormal is just that Donald Trump is abnormal, right? But Mm -hmm. that's kind of where we are. So I wonder what this means for these guys running against him in the primary. I mean, it's happened before, but in 2004, I mean, President Bush didn't really have any major challengers. So I wonder what this means for these big name challengers, how hard they'll push to stay on the ballot in these state primaries. You know, Joe Walsh is probably going to be best positioned to make a stink about this just because he understands media so well. I've been thinking about Boris Johnson. Stay with me for a second. In his decision to expel the MPs who voted against him on the Brexit timetable from the conservative party and how disgusting I find that on one hand and how honest I find it on the other. Hmm. There is a part of me that feels like maybe this is just another moment in that bone-breaking process around whether the Republican Party is anything besides Donald Trump's party. And it seems to me that it's not. And I appreciate Mark Sanford and Joe Walsh and Bill Weld, while none of them are perfect messengers and we could spend a lot of time going through their imperfections. But what's the point of that? Thank you to three people who've said what's happening is unacceptable and I'm willing to do something about it, even though I know what I'll be put through in that process. I'm thrilled that they're doing this. And I also think the fact that two former governors and this party isn't going to hold a primary, you know, a former representative in Mm -hmm. Congress, these are serious people who have benefited the party for a long time. And if state parties and the national organization aren't pressing to have a real debate about what the future of this party is, when the incumbent president is as chaotic and divisive as this one, then I think it is true that the GOP is not a party other than the party of Donald Trump. And maybe we just need to get there and say it out loud and acknowledge it 
so that something else can form or whatever happens happens. But I don't know. I I feel more I expected to feel all angry about this. And what I feel more is just a continuation of sad and resigned. I also often think about how, especially in a democracy, when you try to silence, it only makes the voices louder because you can't because as much as he would like to be an autocrat, he's not. And so when he tries to shut it down, you know, because he can't do that completely, it's just going to give life. It just emboldens people. It just makes them think that you're afraid of what they have to say. It's easy to accuse you of sort of strongman techniques and being afraid of coming up against challengers. And so, I mean, I, if I was the Trump campaign, I would say, no, leave the doors wide open. It's fine. Because the more you try to restrict them, the more you give them oxygen to grow. I totally agree with that. I would love to see a, a mass exodus of people from the party saying this is unacceptable to me. You know, when I my first reaction when I read that New York Times piece about this was, I'm just so glad that I changed my registration. I don't want any part of this. This is awful, and I don't want any part of it. And I wish more people would step up to say, I don't want any part of this. I've heard the argument, and I made it for a long time. If you stay and fight and you try to shift it. But the deck is clearly stacked. You know, what Trump mm-hmm. knows is casinos, and the House wins in casinos. And I think that's right. where the party is right now. Beth, who do you want to compliment this week? I'd like to compliment Governor Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan. She has done something hard. She made a campaign promise that she would not sign a budget into law that did not appropriate some meaningful amount towards $2.5 billion needed to fix Michigan's roads and bridges. And she has decided to push that to the side right now to move forward in negotiations to finish the state's budget by October 1st. And I just want to say that stinks That is difficult. That's miserable. And it is the hard, realistic work of governing. And I applaud her for recognizing that having a budget is better than not having a budget, even if everything isn't as you want in that budget. And I think she will build relationships and credibility and be able in the long term to continue working on these issues that Michigan deserves to have worked on because of her willingness to compromise here. And and very few people are going to give her any kudos for this. So I wanted to be one of the few that will. So I want to compliment the University of Tennessee. This is not very political, but I love it so much. I can't stop thinking about it, and I have to talk about it. So this little boy handmade his own University of Tennessee shirt. Like, he drew the logo on a piece of paper and pinned it to his T-shirt. And then he got bullied because of it, and they were mean to him. And so his teacher sort of put a call out on Facebook. And University of Tennessee not only sent them a big old box of University of Tennessee paraphernalia. They then took his design and have made it a real T-shirt, y'all. And it just, oh, it is warming my heart so much. Also because I was a child who once tried to make my own T-shirt. I wanted an Earth Day T-shirt so bad. So I pinned a cardboard cutout of a globe to a T-shirt. And I just, the open-heartedness and like they've they have like some of his like his drawing spray painted on a couple things around campus i just love the way they've responded to this and totally embraced this little boy and made his life and said like 
You matter and your design. We love your design. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. I'm telling you, I'm tearing up right now. It is so sweet. I love it. And it is a big thing for two people sitting in Kentucky to compliment the University of Tennessee. That's right. Go volunteers. I'm about to be a University of Tennessee fan. That's enough to turn me. Oh, next up. Next up, we are going to talk about the IDEA, which provides rights to children around education, and we are going to get into its funding. And I know that sounds a little wonky, but stay with us. This is really important. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll come right back. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors, and I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick-dry polish. They say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick-dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. 
That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. So Kimberly reached out to us. She is a special education director in Indiana, and she and her son have been to D.C. to advocate for several educational priorities, especially the full funding of the Individuals with Disabilities in Education Act. And she asked us to highlight this issue, and really the more we learned about it, I've personally been affected in my life by this legislation that we really felt it was important for everyone to get the context and the history of the IDEA. Part of that context really dovetails with the New York Times 1619 project, which we're going to talk about in our bonus episode this month. But education came to the forefront of the civil rights movement after Brown versus the Board of Education was decided. The civil rights movement gave rise to programs like Head Start and other programs that ensure children who were socioeconomically disadvantaged had access to good education. And there just became this full-throated conversation in the 60s and early 70s about equal rights for everyone. And we realized in the early 70s that states had laws, some states had laws, specifically excluding children who were blind, deaf, or labeled mentally retarded or behaviorally disturbed, that's the language being used at that time, from public schools. So there were millions of children who had no real access to instruction in the public school system. So Congress passes the Rehabilitation Act in 1973, and Section 504 of that act extended civil rights to people with disabilities. It provided opportunities for children and adults with disabilities in education, employment, and other settings, and it allowed for reasonable accommodations in schools like special study areas and assistance as necessary for each student. But it got really complicated because there are all these new rights contained in the Rehabilitation Act, which which is sometimes called the RHA. But there wasn't a lot of clarity about what those responsibilities meant. And most importantly, there wasn't any new money to help schools meet those responsibilities. So in 1975, Congress passed the Education for All Handicapped Children Act. Now, this appropriated some funding, offered a little clarification, and created a process for resolving disputes between families and schools. But in 1990, that legislation was replaced by the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. So that's the IDEA. And the purposes of the IDEA were several. So the first was to ensure that all children with disabilities have available to them access to a free appropriate public education that emphasizes special education and related services designed to meet their unique needs and prepare them for further education, employment, and independent living. The second is to ensure that the rights of children with disabilities and families of such are protected. It is to assist states, localities, educational service agencies, and federal agencies to provide for the education of all children with disabilities, to assist states in the implementation of a statewide, comprehensive, coordinated, multidisciplinary, interagency system of early intervention services for infants and toddlers with disabilities and their families, to ensure the educators and families have the necessary tools to improve educational results for children with disabilities by supporting system improvement activities, coordinated research and personnel preparation, coordinated technical assistance, dissemination, and support and technology development and media services, 
and to assess and ensure the effectiveness of efforts to educate children with disabilities. Those purposes are taken directly from the statute, and we felt it was important to kind of go through that language to understand this is a really ambitious law. And I want you to keep that in your mind as we start to talk about the funding of this law, because we're trying to do a lot here. And then we'll see kind of what happens when we talk about actually stepping up to the plate to do it. So IDEA has four parts. Part A sets forth the general provisions of the law. Part B provides assistance for special education. So that's where kids from about ages 3 to 21 are in schools receiving special support. Part C covers infants and toddlers with disabilities, and Part D talks about national support programs administered at the federal level. The idea that children should get a free, appropriate public education sounds pretty simple, but in reality, it is very complicated and has given rise to lots and lots of litigation. So a 1998 Supreme Court case written by Justice Ginsburg tells us that free and appropriate education does not mean the best education available to a child based on the child's needs. If a child is making progress, that's enough. It doesn't matter if the child could reach his or her full potential in a different program. So that's hard to think about, that we have a law on the books that says, yes, our schools are open to children with disabilities, and we're going to work with those children to make progress educationally on top of the curriculum. But If the parents or even experts think the child could thrive with different interventions, the school isn't obligated to do the best thing possible. And Justice Ginsburg recognizes the financial reality of public school systems. They they don't have all the resources they need sometimes to reach every child's potential. So that's not what is required. However, IDEA does say that any student with any kind of disability that's adversely impacting their learning can have an IEP. And we're going to talk about that IEP process in a second, but that's an individualized education plan. So there are 13 categories that qualify children for IDEA protection. One of those categories is other health impairment, and that is intended to be an umbrella to ensure that no child can be turned away from these services. If a parent or guardian refuses IEP services, then the school is going to use a multi-tiered system of support to do their best without the IEP. Another really important component is the least restrictive environment requirement, which schools have to provide equal opportunities for all students to achieve independence, productivity, and inclusion. And this gets talked about all the time. This has to be true in curriculum and school activities. So the least restrictive environment requirement means that if at all possible, students need to be in general education settings. So there are co-taught classrooms with 30% or fewer students having IEPs. There are special education students in self-contained classrooms, but that should be the exception, not the rule. And what constitutes the least restrictive environment is really hard to pin down. Paraprofessional support is super important to this concept. This all works best when parents and schools are on the same team, but the IDEA does recognize that sometimes that doesn't happen and there is procedural due process available to families. So you have a a right to request a hearing when your kids' needs aren't being met. We are going to put in the show notes a whole lot of resources for parents who are going through this process about what to expect, about the evaluation process, the eligibility meeting, and how an IEP works. So that individual education 
education plan is a legal document that states what's the what the goals are for a child and what the school's obligations are to provide services and support. Let's just kind of say for today that this process can be really, really tedious and difficult for everyone involved and can feel like a full-time job for parents who already feel like they have 10 full-time jobs in regular parenting plus managing the support services that their kids need. And I don't know, Sarah, if you want to talk about your experience going through this or not. Yes, my youngest son, Felix, suffered a stroke in utero and as a result has a disability. Basically, um, he has reduced usage in his right arm and a little bit in his right leg. Now, if I didn't tell you it, you would notice, but it does have educational impact because it affects a lot of things like his independence, getting dressed, activities where you need to use both hands. So we were put into the system basically upon diagnosis when he was a baby, and he immediately started getting services under First Steps, which is a program that really kicks off, I feel like, your participation in the system. We would have physical therapists come to our home once a week and work with Felix. It was really, it was a really, really awesome program. And then you age out of first steps and then you start to talk to Head Start. And so, you know, that process of aging out of first steps and entering Head Start was pretty intense. And we are both attorneys. My husband is the school board for the, uh, the school board's attorney. So we had lots of access and lots of resources, but it was still a ton of meetings with physical therapists, occupational therapists. We had to decide, first we had to do assessments and decide if, like I said, the disability was educationally impactful. And then we, they had to find a spot for us in Head Start. And then we had to fill out paperwork and do the meetings to set up the IEP. We have to do meetings to check in on the IEP. We get IEP updates and and lots of forms saying we have to, you have to go through and set up all these goals down to, like, I want Felix to be able to tie his shoes. I want Felix to be able to carry his lunch tray with both hands. And so it is it is a very intense process. And that's, you know, that's just the, like, sort of pragmatic reality of filling out paperwork, going to meetings. I have a very flexible schedule, so I really can't fathom how people would be going to all these meetings and dealing with all this if they were working a full-time nine-to-five job that required their sort of presence in an office location. On top of just the pragmatic details of going through this process and filling it out, it is very difficult emotionally to be sort of constantly assessing and thinking about and articulating the ways in which your child may struggle or fall short, right? That's difficult. It makes me tear up just talking about it because that, you know, by, no parent wants to, you know, spend a lot of time assessing with professionals all the, the important milestones their child is not meeting, even if it is a really just everyday reality for you, depending on how intense your child's disability is. It's still just a hard emotional process. Um, and so the emotional sort of energetic <laughs> time impact this process has on you as a parent really can't be overstated. And this is with, like I said, all the resources, all the support. Never once did I feel like we were sort of fighting the school system or that we weren't on the same team. And it was still a lot. It was still a lot. And I talked to some teachers in my family about this process, too, and they said, look, schools want to do this well. 
schools really want to provide these resources. So let's talk about how schools need support. Education accounts for less than 2% of the entire federal budget. And the Trump administration has requested deep cuts to that amount, billions of dollars less on being spent on administration than previous administrations have requested. Within the education budget federally, IDEA funding accounts for about 19%, so it's a big program. Most of that money, over 90% of it, goes to Part B, so actually providing special education to children between 3 and 21. And that money takes the form of grants to states and preschool programs. By the mid-90s, Congress felt that it had made some good progress in serving more children in public schools, and then it became concerned about over-identifying children with disabilities, especially children from historically marginalized communities and specifically Black boys were being over-included in IEP processes, in diagnoses for issues. And so Congress said, well, we want to make sure that we're not going too far here. And this led to an even greater focus on trying to serve as many children as possible in regular classroom settings without IEPs. But that jeopardizes funding. You need IEPs to have the funding sources there to serve under those IEPs. And even when you have them, we're not getting the full funding that Congress promised when IDEA was passed. There is a really complicated formula for how money gets appropriated here, and it has multiple parts. I'm going to try to give you what I understand to be the gist of it, which is that when IDEA was passed, Congress decided that there is some cost on top of what it costs to educate a child who does not need special services. There is additional cost to educating children who do. And they thought at the time that cost was about twice as much. And they said the federal government really ought to step in and help shoulder some of that cost. And we think we should do that at 40% of the excess. So what it takes to serve a child without an IEP, the excess cost to serve a child with an IEP, federal government should come in at 40% of that. That is what we mean when we say fully funding Part B of the IDEA. But lo and behold, we've never done that, not even a single time. In 2019 fiscal year, the funds appropriated for Part B were 14.3% of that excess cost. That excess cost is called the average per pupil expenditure. So we were at 14.3%, less than half of the full funding level. It's currently funded at 16%. Experts say that in 2020, $14 billion is needed to fully fund Part B, which would mean that 40% of the excess cost. And that is what Kimberly and her son and her colleagues went to Washington, D.C. to advocate for, to get us to that full 40%. So as we were getting ready for this episode, I reached out to my mother-in-law and had some conversations with people I know in the educational setting. I understand the concerns with over-identification, but I think the reality for me is that The reason full funding is essential and the reason we need to really lean into not only the funding of the IDAA, but the whole concept is I feel like every child needs an IEP. (laughs) 
I feel like every child, the idea that that there's a system, that there's an that there's an average is so silly when it comes to children. And I think we're learning that the idea that we're going to plug everybody in this box and it's all going to meet everyone's needs is so ludicrous. And watching Felix thinking about how my middle son, Amos, who's been diagnosed with ADD and ADHD, probably needs like similar services, similar sort of special accommodations. But it's like even the language surrounding all this is I struggle with it because, you know, my my mother-in-law who's been working in this area her entire career says that the the biggest sort of misunderstanding is that we all suffer from low expectations. But the idea behind an IEP is that the majority of children covered under the IDEA can achieve academic standards the same as their peers when they have appropriate instruction. She says that we all suffer from low expectations and a lack of access. And I, I think that goes, I mean, I think that parents really on the front end of this legislation and this processing, they're pioneers. I think they are honestly paving the way for where all education needs to to go. The parents and the educators and the special education teachers and the IEP experts and and the people out there working to help the IDEA live up to its purpose and to get it fully funded. I mean, they're doing the work that's going to benefit every child. I truly believe that. Well, and that's true in the most pragmatic way, too, because schools have to meet the obligations of the IDEA, whether they get the money or not. Mm -hmm. And so if they're not getting that full federal funding, they are pulling from other sources to meet those obligations. Every child will benefit when the resources are there to support the needs of all the children around them. You know, if Mm -hmm. you've ever walked into a classroom for five seconds, you can see that it's like an ecosystem. Everybody affects everybody else. And that's wonderful and important. And we should preserve that. And we should step up with the money to make that work. Yeah, we should acknowledge how challenging that is. Absolutely. I think that part of the reason that teachers struggle is because we learn more. We understand the importance of every child's special need. Like I said, like every child's individual education plan. And they're expected to advance in the face of all this increased knowledge, but not giving the appropriate amount of resources, just like this legislation itself, to live up to those expectations, right? I just, you know, fully funding education is such an easy thing to talk about, but we are at such a deficit fully funding public education in the way it needs to not only live it up to the purposes of the IDEA, but to really fulfill the needs of every child inside of the public school system would take a dramatic <laughs> reorganization of our society. I mean, we're talking about lots, lots more taxes because it's the it's an investment that matters. You know, it's it's like everything we've talked about on the show we like to mouth off about how we care about children and how we how we really want to invest in them. But when push comes to shove, you know, we suffer from low expectations or low investment or the under-resourced realities that teachers and administrators and kids and families face every day. 
And we've talked about this before. I'm just not sure that we have a common goal for public schools in America right now. When I was reading commentary about the Supreme Court decision on free, appropriate public education, how controversial that decision is and how disappointing it was to so many people to read there in black and white, the school isn't obligated to help my child reach his or her potential. The facts of that case are heartbreaking. You had Mm -hmm. a child whose parents believed and who experts believed would thrive in actually a more restrictive setting not a less restrictive setting. They really felt that she needed a much more intense program than she was getting at her school. And the Supreme Court said, sorry, we're not required to do that. That's hard. That's as a parent of any child. I think that's heartbreaking to read. I also can understand from the court's perspective, from a legislature's perspective, what does full potential for any student mean? We would all define that so differently based on our values. and. I think we could argue ourselves to death over what schools really exist to equip students to do when they leave the doors. And that's part of how I think we can better support our public schools by engaging in discussions about that. I think what is so difficult to really acknowledge is even by the standard set in that Supreme Court decision that we want to see progress, not necessarily your child's full potential, we are still failing kids. Even under that standard, there are lots of kids that are not even experiencing progress because of limitations, because of lack of resources, in my opinion, because the Supreme Court said long ago in a case about the massive inequalities found in the tax structure through which we fund public school, that education isn't a fundamental right. And so until, like you said, not only do we decide what we're trying to do, but whether or not is a true priority for us when we are willing to fund, when we are willing to make sacrifices to. I don't want to hear people talk about why am I paying for public school if I don't have kids in public school anymore. I think it's going to be hard. I think it's, you know, anybody walking these beginning decades of the IDEA and navigating this process that you know, overpromises and underdelivers often because of a lack of funding and a lack of resources, understands that we talk a big game when it comes to kids. I always think about Michelle Lee, who's a controversial figure, and I get that. But one of the best things I ever heard her say is that in education, the reality is often everybody has an advocate for, but the child. That Teachers are advocating that they're a stakeholder at the table advocating for themselves and administrators are advocating for themselves and parents are advocating for themselves. And yes, absolutely. I say this as a parent myself as, and with many people inside the education system. Everybody believes consciously, subconsciously that they are the advocate for the child. But in reality... It's often a lot of adults speaking for a child. And in reality, it is difficult to create a system that serves a stakeholder who is often not at the table, often can't articulate their needs or can't articulate the systems and processes that will best serve them. I mean, that's I think that's the struggle of the education system. And it is. I mean, it's it's a difficult conversation to have. It's a difficult thing to think about that we have this this institution that 
truly, I believe public education is one of the foundations of our democracy and is massively important to our country. But, you know, that doesn't mean that it's outside criticism and that doesn't mean that it might not be time for a really massive rethink or a massive investment or a massive reorganization. I mean, I think that public education, how it serves all children, but particularly children with the limitations as laid out inside the IDEA, is is not perfect. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered showerhead comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered showerhead. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. 
Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. I would love to note a couple of things before we wrap this up. One is that we've hardly scratched the surface of Mm -hmm. IDA. This law is incredibly complex, and it is one of a number of incredibly complex laws that offer important rights to children and families, that offer important support to teachers and administrators, and that also put in a lot of requirements and a lot of bureaucracy. And I am sure that people who live in that system would tell us that some of it is essential and some of it is an obstacle mm-hmm. in the way of really doing best by our children. And so I do. I wish we could kind of take as a given, and I know that we can't because of a lot of the discussions that go on, especially here in Kentucky about teachers. I wish we could take as a given that Teachers work some miracles, you know, and that what they do for our children and the intentions that they bring to that are remarkable. And also that sometimes they are in systems that do not give them all the tools they need to do what we would all hope is happening for children, especially children who present really challenging situations. So that's one thing. This is just tip of the iceberg, and I hope that you will be encouraged to go learn more because I do believe this affects every single person, whether you have Mm -hmm. children or not. The second thing is that there is a little bit of good news here. There is an act called the IDEA Full Funding Act that has been introduced on a bipartisan and bicameral basis. How often do we get to say those words together? It's exciting. And it creates a 10-year ramp up to full funding at that 40% level. And this is the result of good work by people like Kimberly going out to knock on doors and ask legislatures to hear them out. She particularly wanted to note that Abigail Spanberger spent a lot of time with her state's delegation learning about this issue. So shout out to her. This was sponsored in the House. I just want to give kudos to these people by Representative Mm -hmm. Huffman of California, Representatives Kotko of New York, Neguse of Colorado, McKinley of West Virginia, Phillips of Minnesota, Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania, Schrader of Oregon, and Thompson of Pennsylvania. In the Senate, it was co-sponsored by Senators Van Hollen of Maryland and Roberts of Kansas. And it is really nice to see people working across the aisle to get something done for kids, which is what I think people go to Washington to try to do. Thank you to Kimberly for bringing this to our attention. Again, we will have lots of resources in the show notes for parents, especially who are navigating this process. And we hope to always continue a conversation about education. And we'll return to conversation about people with disabilities in a couple of weeks. We're working on talking more about rights in employment settings. So we want to keep that issue on our radar as well. Sarah, what's on your mind outside of politics? I mean, it's just a running loop of the high woman, if I'm being real honest. I listened to the album approximately 35 plus times since Friday. I withheld most of my enthusiastic pushing on you, and I see from Twitter that it paid off. Yeah, I can't match your level of enthusiasm about anything ever, but I did (laughs) listen to the album and I thought it was brilliant. I thought the lyrics of every song were so good. So good. But the song Old Soul really won me over because I feel like it was written about me. I'm just going to be honest. I think Brandi Carlisle and team and the writers of that song just must have lived in my head for a while. And it's nice to feel that way about music. It doesn't happen very often. 
Mm-hmm. Well, since I have a comprehensive um, understanding of every lyric, because I read all the things that was written, that was um, co-written by Marin Morse and I believe Miranda Lambert, who we all love. I listened to it and I was like, she's going to love it. Don't send it. Don't send it. Let her find her on her own. It'll be better. It took every ounce of self-control I had, truly. Every song is brilliant. I cried at almost every song, except for like, you know, Don't Call Me, which is just about like, get my number out off your phone. It's... I just, I don't even know what to say about it. I have not been this excited about music in a long time. I have not encountered an album like this. I mean, I think the last time I felt like I heard an album where every single song was just stupid good was probably Casey Musgrave's pageant material, which has been a while. It's just so beautiful. And like you said, to to hear songs written by women and a couple men about women's lives and existence in a way that just speaks to my soul is it's just amazing. I keep thinking of burnout and how they talk about how important music can be and dancing to music that like really connects with you. And I can just feel all my all these incomplete stress cycles just lining up, finishing off to the to the amazing music of the high women. I mean, they're just they are. They are solving my problems, giving me life, making me happy. My my husband Saturday morning was like, okay, I'm going to give you one more listen. And I laughed in his face. I laughed in his face. I was like, sir, you were going to be listening to this music clear through Christmas. So you need to just prepare yourself. The first time I heard Don't Call Me, I laughed out loud. I mean, it's it is genuinely funny. So funny. And it's when she nice. says, don't text your don't text your ex. I know. No, call your ex. I know y'all still text. Oh, it's so good. It's just, it's hilarious. And it's nice to see, like, the arc of that album because some songs are just, like, gut punch, I get you. Uh-huh. And then there are some that make you laugh. It, It's really well done. I agree with you, Sarah. And this is about as excited as I get about anything. And so Love here it. I am. May Brandy Carlisle's influence outlast Donald Trump's. That's what I have to say about oh, 2019. Oh, my God. It's so true. She's a beautiful human. So what's on your mind outside politics? I have a guess. Is it yard sales? Well, we spent the weekend yard selling. And I have to give Chad a shout out here because I agreed to do this yard sale. And then on Friday, an important client of mine scheduled a couple meetings that I had to be part of. And so I helped get things out. And my help with that is less than Chad's because some of it is really big and heavy and I am not able to help as much as I would like to. And then he ran the whole thing by himself. And then Saturday morning, I had a board retreat for a nonprofit that I serve on. And so I helped get it out. And then I was gone the whole time again. I was with him on Sunday for a compressed version of the art sale. And I had some observations that I shared on Instagram stories because I really want Ann Helen Peterson to write a book called The Yard Sale Economy. I'm just <laughs> fascinated by people people's behavior at yard sales, like where we are bartering and where we are negotiating and how we treat people's things when those things are sitting out right in front of their homes. Like, I think the whole thing is just this massive sociological experiment. I am surprised we've not had like an A&E show about yard sailors. Maybe we have and I just haven't come across it. But it's a, it's quite the thing. It was worth it for us. We made over $1,000. That's a baller. That's a real... That's a real haul. Now, here's my question, though. Did you give the girls money for their their belongings that were sold? No. We gave Jane $10 for a desk that she cleaned all the marker off 
So we told her that because she cleaned it up, she could have the money that came back. But the girls were delighted. I was really worried that Ellen in particular was going to be upset about getting rid of things. We took a little kid's kitchen out of her room that she never, ever played with. And I asked her, do you want to sell this or do you want to keep it? And she said, let's sell it. And then when I took it out of her room, I was braced for tears. And she walked over to the spot where it was and she turned around and looked at me and said, mommy, look how big my room is. And Aww. I thought, oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> we're in a good state here. But that really hasn't come up. I mean, we're going to use the money for all kinds of things that will benefit the children. So I'm not, I'm not worried about that directly, but it was good. My house feels better. It feels lighter. We have lots to donate still and lots of work to do to kind of finish getting rid of everything. But I am thrilled to have a lot of this stuff out. Well, I asked because one of my most vivid childhood memories is my parents and their friends had a big yard sale and I made good money selling my stuff. They let me sell my stuff. And I feel like it was like, mm, I mean, it was in the 90s. So like 35 bucks or something. It was a good it was a good number. And then they gave me this little post-it note, which I still have. And I will post on Instagram where they deducted like the cost of the classified and the cost of the supplies to put up the signs and labor and like cut out all of my profits until I had like $5 and then I burst into tears and they felt bad and they gave me the full amount. What a learning though. What a lesson. They they took that yard sale moment to teach to me. That is awesome. I have a feeling that the next time we do it, we'll be there with both girls. We are in a space right now where if Ellen is not included, it's it's just not worth it for anyone. <laughs> and I feel like <laughs> Ellen's not quite old enough to do that. But next time, I think they could both be on board. We also, before we go, need to give a shout out to our dear friend, Ann Bogle, who today is celebrating her 200th episode of her fabulous podcast, What Should I Read Next? If you are not an Ann Bogle fan, and I know many, many of you are, you should check it out, especially if you are a reader. But congratulations, Ann and Ann's team. 200 episodes is not a joke. Podcasting Mm -hmm. is hard, and they're doing a fantastic job over there. And so we're just, we're celebrating you, Ann. I also wanted to say, on behalf of both of us, a huge thank you to Lou, longtime listener who created a Pantsuit Politics bingo card <laughs> after we talked about it on the last episode. It is a work of art. And then everybody was like, what about this? What about this? What about this? And another listener put them together in a bingo card generator. So now there are actual more than one. So you can play bingo. Many are promising to bring said bingo cards to our Nuance Nation events, which we wholeheartedly endorse. So thank you, Lou. And thank you, Paul, who did the generator. What a special gift you've given us. It did give me a little bit of a complex about my pronunciation. And what touched my heart so much is that then Dylan, our producer, saw my freak out and sent me like a paragraphs long explanation of why this pronunciation is happening. I was like, you get me, Dylan. You understand? (laughs) I will obsess about that until I die now. So it's a lot of fun seeing that. It's so much fun seeing you all at live shows. Speaking of, we're doing one at Midway University this Wednesday. So on Friday, we'll be sharing the audio from that with you. We are excited to keep the conversation going about everything that we've discussed today and all that develops between now and Friday. Hope you'll check out the Nuanced Life this week. We're going to share some amazing stories of bravery. And until we talk with you again, keep it nuanced, y'all.
Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.